Well, again, good morning. Welcome. So glad that you are, are here with us. Uh, today, my name is Nathan. I'm the campus pastor here at the Olathe campus of Christ Community. Uh, it's great to be together. It's great to continue our, our time in John. Uh, I love the way that he uh, tells stories, uh, including the one that we just heard read uh, there for us. Let me, let me pray for us, and then we'll, uh, yeah, we'll give it a shot. So let's pray. Uh, God, thank you so much that you are, are here with us, and God, that you speak to us uh, from your word. Uh, God, we, we long to hear from you. We need to hear from you. And so, Lord Jesus, we, we trust that you are not just a person who was, um, but you are, and that you are here with us, and that your voice and your actions continue to ring true for us today. And so, God, I pray that you would do your work um, within each of our hearts, God, beginning with my own. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, a few weeks back, Kelly and I went and saw um, the Kansas City Repertory Theater's production of Our Town. Uh, it's the 1938 Pulitzer Prize winning play by Thornton Wilder. Um, and we, we enjoy the theater. We, we try to go when, when we can. It's pretty rare, but love, love doing it. I, I had never seen Our Town before. I know it's old, right? Ancient even. Um, and yet to, to go, it, honestly, it surprised me. Um, so much so that I bought the play the next day and read it the day after that, just to sort of sit in it for a little bit. And so when we, when we showed up to the theater, the, the stage and the, the seating was similar to this, right? With people all around, except the stage was, was longer. And Kelly and I were actually seated right up here on the stage. So we were kind of right in the, in the center of all the action, which was kind of interesting. Um, and if you don't know the story, basically, uh, the whole thing is done with almost no props no sets, no stage, or um, like um, costumes or, or um, staging or anything, anything like that. It's, a, it's as minimal as possible. And it's really just the, the simple story of an unimportant town and a very, very, very average couple, but it's, it's perfectly told. And then the, the third act begins, and there are about 15 people all seated on the stage in chairs, facing one particular direction, evenly spaced apart. Uh, it was a, a talking graveyard. And the audience discovers that the um, young wife from the previous two acts had died in childbirth as she's being welcomed in by old friends into the cemetery. And, and she gets there, and she wants so badly to go back, to just... Get a glimpse, right? Just to, to experience one even unimportant, average, simple day, anything. And, and everybody there at the cemetery warns her not to go back. It's not worth it. Don't do it. Because if you do, you'll see what all of us living people miss every day. It'll just go by too quick. You'll, you'll, you'll see everything that you've missed. But she doesn't listen, of course, okay? Um, and she walks straight to the back of the stage and reveals a whole new stage behind there. One that you haven't noticed or, or seen the entire time. And this one has uh, bright lights and beautiful decor and full of, of props and sets and costumes and everything. There's literally a woman frying bacon and making fresh coffee. I mean, on stage there. I mean, imagine, imagine the stark contrast from almost no props for a good, I don't know, hour and 20 minutes to the smell and sounds of bacon and coffee. And what Wilder is, is saying, right, the, the guy who wrote this play so long ago, he said, that's how we live our lives, you and me. In two-dimensional, black and white, hurried and bland. 
and we just miss it. And only, only looking back, only when it's too late for us to actually do anything about it, only then do we notice it. And so she says in that moment, right, experiencing this for the first time, she says, I can't go on. It goes so fast. We don't even have time to look at one another. And you just feel the regret as she weeps. I didn't realize, she says. So all that was going on and we never noticed. Take me back. But first, wait. One more look. Goodbye. Goodbye, world. Goodbye to clocks ticking and food and coffee and hot baths and sleeping and waking up. Oh, earth, you're too wonderful for anybody to realize you. Do any human beings ever realize life while they live it? No. The narrator answers her question for her. And so regretfully, she returns back to the cemetery, and there she's welcomed by a man who'd committed suicide. These are his words right towards the end of this play. He says, now you know. That's what it was to be alive. To move about in a cloud of ignorance, to go up and down, trampling on the feelings of those about you, to spend and waste time as though you had a million years, to be always at the mercy of one self-centered passion or another. Now you know. That's the happy existence you wanted to go back to. Ignorance and blindness. Ugh. It's painful, isn't it? Especially because, in large part, we know that it's true. That life is so easy to miss. In, in our hurried distraction, we, we so quickly grow indifferent or complacent, right? And, and even, even though it's right there in front of us, available to all, it's missed by most, even by those with the fewest excuses. Life is so easy to miss. And I think maybe that's why John includes this story in his biography of Jesus. It's in John chapter 5 if you want to follow along. We only heard the good part of the story that Tim read for us. But go, go ahead and turn there if, if you have a Bible with you. Because with you, I think this is one of the most surprising stories. Because here is a, is a guy who saw it, right? Who saw what he saw, experienced what he experienced. Things that you and I, we can only read about, right? But long for And he completely misses it. Jesus offers him life and he settles for so much less. Which scares me. Because if this guy can miss it, any of us can. In fact, some of us sit here this morning mistakenly convinced that we're Christians. Or maybe maybe you're not a Christian, but you're, you're convinced that you've You've got a pretty good handle on life, right? You've got it figured out. And so easily, regardless of of which way we come to it, it's so easy for us to grow completely indifferent, completely complacent, and miss it just like the sky. Okay, so picture ancient Jerusalem. Good luck, I know. What do we know, right? But do your best. Imagine it. And imagine this this pool surrounded by, by columns. Here's a picture of the ruins. This is what the pool would have looked like. It's called the the Pool of Bethsaida, which means literally the the Pool of Mercy, the Pool of Outpouring. And you've got to imagine it now chock full of people. John tells us that it's, it's full of the blind, the paralyzed, the lame. 
I mean, it's standing room only if only they could stand, right? Here's a a painting from the the 16th century just to kind of give it some some imagery for us there in that spot. You see, legend had it uh, that every once in a while an angel would like swoop down and stir up the water. And that whoever jumped in the water first would be healed. Let's stop for a minute and think about that. It just kind of feels like a cruel joke, doesn't it? Like something out of a Monty Python film. Right? You're going to tell these, these blind, lame, paralyzed people that in, in their frenzy, if they can be the first one in the water, there's a vain hope that maybe, a wish, that they'll be healed. It's an empty superstition. And yet when you're that desperate, sometimes it feels like anything to believe in is better than nothing to believe in, I guess. Now on this, this particular day, it's the Sabbath, it's a big deal in that culture. And Jesus is there. And of all of these people who need his help, one man catches his eye. Only one. It's a guy who had, who had been there, unable to use his legs for 38 years. And so Jesus walks over to him and asks what at first glance, feels like either the dumbest or rudest question imaginable. Do you want to be healed? Nah, man, I like it that my legs don't work, right? But what is Jesus doing in that moment? Well, I think there's more here than we often, often see. You see, the word for healed that Jesus uses, it's the less common word for healing. It means literally to, to put back together again, to, res- to restore, to, to, to make whole. And what's interesting about this word is that it's, it's used, almost every time it's used to talk about Jesus healing somebody, all but one of those times, it's on the Sabbath, of all the times that he heals, this word is particularly used on the Sabbath. Sabbath was a day of wholeness, right? Of restoration, of rest, of, of all being right with the world. That was sort of the, the mindset there. And so I think when Jesus asks this man this, he's not merely saying, do you want your legs to work again? He's saying, do you want to be well? Do you want to be whole? He's saying And how does the guy respond? Well, I've got nobody to put me in the water. Somebody always, for 38 years, somebody else has always gotten in the water before me. And on the one hand, right, you hear his his agony, you hear his complaint, and you, you, you pity him, right? That he's been in this predicament for that long, and he's got no one that can help him. And yet at the same time, John is pointing out the irony of the story, right? He is there before the Son of God, the the creator of the universe, the one who made his body and knows how it works more than anything, and he's clinging to his superstition. To Jesus, right? He says, Jesus says, "Do do you want to be whole? And this guy basically says, would you help me get into the water? And Jesus is like, no. I'm not going to help you get in the water. Take up your bed, he, he says. Get up and walk. And at once, the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. And you can just feel the happy ending coming on, right? Inspiring music, 
fade to black, roll credits. I mean, surely if anybody gets it, it's this guy, right? I mean, he couldn't walk for 38 years, and now he, he can. If anybody is whole, both body and soul, who's going to follow this guy named Jesus, it's got to be this guy, right? I mean, that's what we expect. But life is so easy to miss. So he walks off, this guy does, carrying his mat, right? First time in 38 years. And the Pharisees, they stop him. And they're like, hey, buddy, (laughs) we don't do that on the Sabbath. Uh, And in fact, it's a pretty big deal. Uh, We definitely don't do that. You see, that was one of the added things that the Pharisees had added to the law, uh, that, you know, no carrying your bed on the Sabbath. Okay, fine. And so this guy's in a bind, right? And, and what happens next begins to re- reveal a lot about this guy because the first thing he does is he blames Jesus. He doesn't know that it's Jesus, but the, the first words out of his mouth, right, in that moment, I don't, I, don't, I don't know who told me to pick up my bed and mat. Some other guy did it. It's, it, you know, it's, his, it's his fault. I'm just, I'm just obeying what happened, right? I, he healed me, and now I'm obeying him. And the Pharisees... They jump right to this, this, well, who? Who told you to carry your mat? You see the irony again here, right? Everybody's missing it. I mean, they are are more concerned that some guy told this other guy to break their silly laws than the fact that this guy who hadn't been walking in 38 years now with a word from another person is able to do so. Talk about missing it. But it's not just the Pharisees. Because this guy, he doesn't even know who healed him. And, and John tells us that Jesus, he, he slipped away after it happened. We don't, we don't exactly know why, but it's almost as if this guy, he, doesn't, he didn't even try to figure out who healed him. You know, his 38-year-old illness, and he's sort of, I, I don't know who did it. That's a good question. It's like, I didn't think about that. I mean, he's, he's almost caught in this, this dumbfounding situation, trying to pass the buck onto somebody else, not even knowing who it is. And if you think I'm exaggerating in this story, I think what happens next for me is, is the clincher. Because Jesus goes out and he finds him. Not, not the other way around. Right? This guy isn't out looking for Jesus. Jesus is out looking for him. And Jesus calls him out for his sin. Look, look what it says. It's verse, verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. It's kind of an interesting response, isn't it? Running into this guy. But remember, Jesus doesn't just want this man to be healed. He wants him to be whole. And he points out a problem much bigger than this guy's legs. His sin. And whatever his sin is, we don't know. John doesn't tell us for whatever reason. But for whatever, whatever it is, Jesus calls him out for it and gives him a really stern warning. I mean, it's just like the Samaritan woman last week, if you're, if you're here, right? That Jesus, yes, he pursues sinners with love and grace and mercy, but he never, never leaves us to wallow where we were. He, he picks us up, he pulls us out, and so he says to this guy, stop sinning. Now, now, Jesus, he's not, he's not saying here that every bad thing that happens to us is a result of our sin, okay? Of course not, okay? In fact, in a later healing story in John chapter 9, which, by the way, that guy 
does get it. He does get who Jesus is in that moment. But, but for him, in that story, Jesus is very clear that it's not because of this guy's sin or because of his parents' sin, that sometimes junk just happens in our lives. And we don't, we don't know why. We don't know what God is up to in those moments without any relation to our sin. But we also know, don't we, that sometimes bad things happen because of our sins. Right? I mean, if you're an alcoholic and your liver gives out, you can't really blame God for that, can you? It seems foolish. Or if you, if you can't stop looking at porn and your marriage begins to fall, fall apart, you can't blame God for that. Who's, whose fault is that, right? Stop sinning, Jesus says. Or something worse is going to happen to you. Now, what do you think would be a good response in a situation like this? I mean, think about it, right? If that was you, right, you haven't used your leg, legs in 38 years, maybe ever, we don't know if this guy was born this way or what. Um, and now you've been restored to life in ways that you can't even imagine. Think about all that this means for this guy. Seriously, what would, what would you do? How would you respond? Maybe say thanks. Maybe, I don't know. Um, follow him. Worship him. Maybe take him seriously when he tells you to knock it off with the sinning thing, right? Maybe see if there's another place that he can heal in your life. Something, something, more, something deeper, more, more important. Who knows, right? But, and that's, that's, what, that's what happens in John 9. If you want to compare these stories, you ought to do that later on this week. Read John 9. Uh, when Jesus heals that guy, the, the difference, the Pharisees are involved, it's, it is, it's night and day. That guy gets it. This guy, no, what does he do? One mention of his sin, and he's off to see the Pharisees. And he promptly throws Jesus under the bus. It's a tattletale. He knows, right, that the easiest way to get them off of his back is to point out the culprit, the real enemy. And I almost picture Jesus in that moment, right? This guy storming off on his perfectly good legs away from Jesus. Just kind of picture him saying, yeah, you're, you're welcome, I guess. And John tells us what happens as a result of this. Verse 16, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Life is so easy to miss, and he misses it. He couldn't walk for 38 years, clinging to a superstition, now healed, but far from whole. And that scares me. I mean, in some ways, we couldn't be more different from this guy, right? I mean, look at us. We got our stuff together. We couldn't be more different from this individual, and yet every one of us here has encountered Jesus in some way. I mean, not like this guy, okay, certainly. I, I, don't, I don't think any of us have had that experience. And you, you, may not, you may not believe in him. You may not have given your life to him. But if you're here, right, we've, we've been given a glimpse of this, this God who I believe comes and, and rescues us, right? We've all been given that. And if he could miss Jesus, I mean, what hope do we have, really? Well, there are three questions that I've been wrestling with this week as I've reflected on this story. Three questions, three little warning signs along the way of this man's indifference. Because I don't, I don't want to miss it. And I, I know how, how prone I am to, to wander, to, to leave this, right? To, to, to run in the other direction. I know it's in here. So how... 
how can we learn from his experience? How can I kill the, the, the complacency, the indifference in my own heart? A few questions. First, ask yourself, do I want tweaks or do I want transformation? Tweaks or transformation? Because, I mean, the man wanted to walk. And who can blame him, right? I, I certainly don't want to make light of that. I can't imagine the agony and disappointment that this guy experienced for 38 years. It's terrible. And yet that's all he wants from Jesus. That's it, right? And the moment that's done, as, lo- as long as he can, can be a, a better person, right, have a little bit of a better life, he doesn't want to change. He just wants to be improved. It kind of reminds me of the metaphor that Tim gave a couple weeks ago. Um, that, you know, we come, to, it's as if we're horses, okay? This was the metaphor, remember this? And it's as if we come to Jesus and we ask him to, to teach us to jump higher, right? We come and say, hey, Jesus, would you just give me a few tidbits on life? You know, help me, help me kind of clean up my act a little bit. Help me get my things together a little bit. Would you, would you do that for me, to Jesus? And, and the reality is Jesus doesn't want to teach us to jump higher. He, he wants to, to give us wings. He wants us to turn us into something new, something different, something entirely better and whole. The former Oxford professor, uh, the atheist who became a Christian, uh, C.S. Lewis is his name, um, he paints a, a beautiful picture of this in uh, the book, The Great Divorce. It's kind of a strange little book. It's sort of a fantasy story about, about heaven and hell, kind of a, a parable uh, as he tells it. Uh, but in, in the story, there's this character with a red lizard on his shoulder. He carries it around everywhere he goes. He, just, he, can't, he can't get rid of it. It's just there, and it is, it is annoying. It annoys him. It annoys everyone else. It's always yelling and screaming and, and making a racket. Everywhere it goes, it's such a pain. And, and so eventually an angel comes over and says, hey, you want me to take care of that? I mean, I can, I can quiet him down for you if you like. The guy's like, oh, thank you. Yes, absolutely. Would you please just make him be quiet? But as soon as the angel begins his work, Man screams out, no, no, what are you doing? That, that hurts. What, what's going on? Slow down. Stop it. Stop it. Well, you, don't, you don't want me to kill him? Who said anything about killing him? No, I don't want you to kill him. I want you to make him be a little bit quieter, right? He's just, he just embarrasses me. He, he comes in when I don't want him to. He's always there. Just, just, can you just make him be a little bit quieter? And he makes excuse after excuse after excuse, refusing to be healed. Man, that reminds me of me. Because deep down, do I really want to change? I kind of like my messes. I like the things that I run to to make me feel good about myself or make me feel important. But friends... Jesus didn't come to make decent people better. He came to make dead people live. And maybe, maybe you hear that and you think, yes, I, I do. I want to be transformed. I don't, I don't want to be tweaked. I want him to change everything about me. And I like to think that too. Really? So your finances, he can have all of it, every single penny to determine what, what you do with it. Your marriage, the good parts and the bad parts, your bitterness or your anger, your hurt. Your kids, can you have those? Your reputation, success, your free time, your friends, the things you like to do for fun. 
all of it? Really? Total control? I mean, some of us wonder why we don't change. I mean, truthfully, I think in large part, it's because we don't want to change. I mean, sure, I, I want to walk a little taller, feel a little prouder, a little better about myself. But to actually do the hard work of taking up his cross and following this guy? Really? Maybe for some of you, maybe this is why you're not a Christian. Truthfully, I can't blame you. I mean, at least, at least you're honest about it, right? You know that Jesus, he doesn't want to be a hobby. He wants to be your master. Nothing less. And yet life is so easy to miss. The second question is related. Do you want relief or rescue? Imagine for a moment if you had a dislocated shoulder. Anybody have that before? I've heard it's like excruciatingly painful. I've never, I've never had one before. I've heard it's just it's like a terrible, terrible experience. And in that moment, right, I could give you pain medicine. Lots and lots of it. Um, I mean, I don't actually carry around pain medicine, but in this story, right, I, I could do that um, and, and give you relief, right? Make it go away. Make your pain feel better. But we all know that's not your problem, is it? That's not your real problem. What you need is someone to reset your shoulder, which I've heard is even more excruciating than the pain you're experiencing in that moment, right? But it's, it's the only way. And so do we want relief or do we want rescue? Let me look at it this way. The indifferent man, right, the man there at the pool, he's convinced that his biggest problem is his legs. And I don't want to make a light of that. Okay, I, I hope you don't hear that at all. I, I don't want to, that's a, that's a big problem. That feels absolutely legitimate. And maybe, maybe in your mind, you sit here this morning, and your biggest problem is your marriage. I don't, I don't want to minimize that. Or your kids, or your, your finances are just, they, they're a mess. Your, your health, and you, you feel it, and you're afraid. Or, or maybe, any list of things, right? And I, again, I don't want to make light of that. Maybe that's why you're here. If that's the case, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're here. And I, I pray, I, I pray that God would bring you relief from whatever pain it is you're experiencing in. The reality is, Jesus always goes deeper than that. I mean, he'll, he'll take you for those reasons, right? But he always wants more. Because friends, my, my biggest problem in life is not my problems. Man, that's what I think of, right? That's what I focus on. That's what I try to fix, try to clean, clean up all my little, my little things, my little issues, my little whatever that, that it is that other people see or that I feel guilty about or whatever. But that's, that's not my biggest problem. My biggest problem is that left to my own devices, I will willfully choose my own path to self-destruction. Stop sinning, Jesus says, unless something worse is gonna happen. What I need is rescue, not just relief. And so do you see the difference there? Because yes, maybe, maybe you're here and you're praying, praying that God would fix your marriage. And I, I'd love to pray with you that God would fix your marriage. But maybe what God wants to do is fix your selfishness or your pride or your bitterness or your unforgiveness. And maybe you're here and you're praying, God, fix my finances, right? Which really what we need is God can have some more money. Maybe, maybe God wants to fix your materialism or your greed or your selfishness. Our problems aren't our biggest problem. And we Christians, we're so good at treating symptoms, aren't we? 
We see symptoms, we, we run to them, we try to do everything we can. It's not, that, it's not that we ignore our symptoms, it's that we've forgotten that there is a disease that is eating away at our lives and at our world. Because here's the deal. If Jesus is merely relief from your problems, then you'll end up doing exactly what this guy does. You'll sell him out to fix your next problem, right? Whatever that is. That's what happens, right? This guy, as soon as, as soon as his big problem gets fixed, he runs into another problem. Jesus gave him relief from that other problem. Now he's looking at Jesus. I'll just throw him under the bus, right? I can get out of this trouble with the Pharisees. We'll do the, if, if that's all he is to us, we'll do the exact same thing. We need rescue from our sin, not mere relief from our problems. Finally, last question. If you don't want to miss it, I don't, I don't want to miss it. If you don't want to be like this indifferent man who was offered so much yet received so little, ask yourself, do I want something or someone? Do I want Jesus? Or do I want what I think I can get from him? Even the things that he, that he promises, even the things that are legitimate, I mean, think of it this way. I meet periodically with, uh, you know, engaged couples to plan the ceremony and all that kind of thing. And it's fun. I like to, to mess with them a little bit. I love, I love asking the, the question, why do you want to get married? You know, it's a big question. There's lots of different ways to answer it, but that's kind of a fun one. And I like to poke at it a little bit. Um, but, you know, imagine in that situation, if someone in response said, well, you know, I just, I make a lot of messes and I need somebody to clean up after me. <laughs> or, or if somebody said, you know what, I just... It's the whole sex thing. I really like sex. Or I'm, I'm lonely most of the time and, and I want somebody to... Or I just feel better about who I am when I'm with them. Which hopefully, anytime you hear that, you think, that seems like a problem, doesn't it? I mean, it doesn't sound like a relationship. That's, that sounds like selfishness. It sounds like taking, not, not giving. And yet, I can do the exact same thing with Jesus. And just because I can't see him or hear him or touch him, I think that it's, it's, it's okay, right, for me to just sort of want him for what he can give me or what he offers me rather than wanting him for who he is. Because every one of us, I mean, we all have our little pool, don't we? I mean, sure, our legs might work. It might not be our problem. But we all have our little whatever that we sit around waiting for longing for. Because this, this story, I mean, this, this story is about us, isn't it? This is, it's about our world. We, we are broken and we are desperate and we are waiting for whatever it is we think will possibly give us what we're longing for, what we're hoping for. And we'll build our lives upon whatever that happens to be, right? This little temple around this little tiny pool. And we think, if only I can get in first, if only I can get it the way I want, if only I can get married, or, or only if my husband will change, or we get our finances, or my kids do this, or my health does that. And we think, if, if, if only. And we sit there waiting, waiting for whatever it is we're living for. And meanwhile, in the midst of that, right, picture me sitting by that pool, craving something more. And Jesus walks over to me and says, hey, Nathan, do you want to be whole? Do you want to be well? And my response, more often than not, why don't you just help me get into that pool, would you? Because we don't want him. We want fill in the blank. I mean, why, why is it that we will try just about anything else before we try Jesus? Friends, and I don't, I don't want us to miss this here because I think this last little bit here, I think this is the real miracle of the story. 
mean, the legs are cool, right, that God can do that. Jesus does that, and there's lots of healing stories of him doing really incredible things. But I think what's so unique here, the thing that surprises me, that kind of catches me off guard, knowing this story, is that I believe Jesus, Jesus knew what was going to happen. I mean, because even, even when Jesus walks up to him, John tells us that Jesus knew already before he met this guy that this guy had been dealing with this for 38 years. Jesus knew this guy, and yet still he comes to him. Still, he, he goes and he, he finds him later in the temple. Still, he lovingly calls him out in the midst of his sin and darkness. Still, he heals his legs. And this guy wants nothing to do with him. Man, aren't you amazed by a God like that? A God who pursues people like us. Because he will, he will run after you wherever you are. He will, he will long for you to come to him, whatever you look like. No matter what pool it is you're swimming in, and no matter how many times you've run away, I mean, even if life is so easy to miss, because I don't want to live like that. I don't, I don't want this story to be about me. I don't want that play to be like me, right? Life just whizzing by, living a bland and unhurried two-dimensional life, right? With, full of, of regrets and pain and heartache because I, I missed it. I don't want this story to be about me, right? A, a, a person who seems to get everything in that moment and yet misses all of it. Do you want to be well? Do you want to be whole? Do you?